Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. How should the second coming of Jesus affect how we live? Well, during the program, we'll answer that question as we continue our current series with Dr. John Newfeld. Turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, with this message called, Keep Calm and Live Expectantly. The study of end times is a fascinating study. It allows us to catch just a glimpse of the future and tells us what God is up to. God has, I think, given us this glimpse into the future for at least three reasons. First of all, he wants us to know that he's in charge. The world is not spinning out of control while God looks on at a distance, unwilling or unable to do anything about it. God is actively involved in the world at this very moment. Only those things that he permits can happen. Whatever he forbids never comes into being. Whatever he plans is a sure thing. I take great solace in that as we approach a new year, and so should you. Secondly, God gives us a glimpse into the future to give us courage and hope in the present hour. Regardless of what you're facing today, God promises that in the end, if you put your hope in Christ, you win. Regardless of the challenges you face individually or we face together as the church of Jesus Christ in our communities, we are promised that the end result will be that Christ's plan will prevail. If you become immersed in God's plan for the future, your present challenges ought to fill you with unstoppable confidence and courage. Finally, God gives us a glimpse into the future to help us to fall in love with Jesus more. One day, you will see the one whom you do not now see. You have spent time praying to him, and you've hoped in his promises, and you think of him often, and you love him deeply. And one day you will see him, and he will see you. The study of last things intensifies your longing. And as we continue to talk about the second coming of Jesus, I want us to take us to a key passage, and that's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, which will help us keep calm and live expectantly. Let's begin by reading the first two verses. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You know, the book of 2 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the Greek city of Thessalonica, somewhere between AD 49 and 51, while he was on his second missionary journey, while he was in the city of Corinth. From Corinth, Paul heard that the Thessalonian Christians were in a state of confusion. Some of them believed that the day of the Lord had already come, and in consequence, some were upset and frightened. And so Paul's first word to them is to encourage them not to be unsettled. You know, from reading this letter, it seems that Paul himself was not sure of where the Thessalonian believers got this idea. He has heard that some claimed that they had received a letter from him. Perhaps there had been those who had read this in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he told them that Jesus would come like a thief in the night. Or perhaps some teachers had misrepresented his letters, or perhaps even someone had delivered a prophecy about this matter, or perhaps there were some who had forged a letter from Paul and were circulating it. Now, we might want to pause here and try to understand the nature of what must have happened. 
Some Bible teachers wonder whether the phrase day of the Lord might refer to the whole series of events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. So it was not as if they thought that Jesus had already returned and was off somewhere in secret, but that the signs that would immediately precede his coming had arrived. And now perhaps in just a few days or perhaps a few weeks, Jesus himself would make his appearance. Now, if that's the case, Some in the Thessalonian church were roughly equivalent to those who make predictions in our day, setting dates or pretending to know that we are now in the season of the Lord's return. Now, in history, those who do these things and are sometimes prone to quitting their jobs and and selling their property and cutting all connections to their regular obligations in life and, and giving themselves to nothing but waiting. Perhaps this had begun there, and Paul is speaking strongly against this impulse. And then he says something that may surprise us. You'll remember if you listened to the program yesterday that Jesus made a distinction between the sign that he will return and to the idea of birth pains. The birth pains tell us that the birth is coming, but it might not mean right now. But in what Paul says next, he seems to indicate a sign which would indicate that the coming of Jesus is right at hand. So let's read the text. And after that, let's try to unpack what Paul just said. And then I'm going to try to help get by some of the difficulties that we might have with the teaching of Paul. And then we'll try to resolve the issues. Well, that's a lot. So let's read verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. See, almost all Bible students agree that the man of lawlessness referred to here is the man Daniel called in Daniel 7, the other horn, who are, or who, according to Daniel 7.21, is the one who makes war with the saints and prevails over them. This is a terrifying king who will oppress the saints and change times and seasons. John, in Revelation 13, calls him the beast who rises out of the sea to whom the dragon or Satan gives his power and his throne and his authority. He blasphemes God in his dwelling place and makes war on the saints, the followers of Jesus, and for a season of time, he actually conquers them. See, isn't it interesting that Paul's counsel to the Thessalonians in the first two verses is that they should not become easily unsettled? Now, to be sure, he means that they should not be unsettled by the fake reports that the day of the Lord has already arrived. But this, the description of the man of lawlessness, has unsettled many a believer since then. So let's see if we can read these verses with a sense of encouragement without becoming overly anxious. Notice again in verse 3 that, that Paul tells of the Antichrist who will precede the day of the Lord by expressing his major concern. Let no one deceive you. Don't get the wrong ideas about the second coming of Christ, and you will be safeguarded by a truth. The day of the Lord won't come unless the rebellion comes first. The original language uses the word apostasy, which means a falling away. The word is only used in one other place in the New Testament, and that's found in Acts 21, verse 21, where the Jews accuse the apostle Paul of causing people to forsake the teaching of Moses. Literally, he was accused of causing people to commit apostasy from Moses. See, that's the word apostasia, and it refers to a religious falling away, a rebellion against God. 
Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, Paul tells us that there will be a great falling away from God. Jesus, speaking of those days, said in Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. We would anticipate this would be a time when people are unconcerned about the gospel and rather give themselves to other pleasures. Jesus also went on to say in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. It seems likely to me that Paul had in mind that there would be a great falling away from Christ among supposed Christians and that faith in Christ would be replaced by a false religion accompanied by satanic miracles. Perhaps he also has in mind a general lack of interest in the things of God. Now, of course, this has always plagued the church, and we are warned not to allow our love for Christ to grow cold. The second thing that Paul mentions is the actual rise of the man of lawlessness. This is a very interesting title for the Antichrist. On the one hand, since we know that he will rule over the whole earth, we might expect him to be a man of law and order. Why isn't he called a man of harsh laws? Daniel even mentions that he will change laws, not that he will do away with the law. How then will he be called a man of lawlessness? Now, the answer to that question seems to be related to the kind of lawlessness that Paul has in mind. It's the law of God that this man intends on breaking. This is Paul's way of saying that the Antichrist sets out to violate everything that's holy. He will oppose God at every turn. He will call an end to the worship of God and demand that he, rather than God, is to be worshipped. He will proclaim himself to be God. Now, verse 4 then becomes fascinating. There we are told that he seats himself in the temple of God. Now, in Paul's day, the temple was still there. But Paul knew that Jesus had cursed the temple and that he promised that not one stone would be left on another. And in Paul's day, believers were living with the thought that the temple would be destroyed. And yet here in 2 Thessalonians, we have a temple and an antichrist seated in it, and we're left to wonder what all of that means. We're going to try to explain that when we come back. It seems that Paul's words to the believers are also fitting in our day, as many still wonder when Jesus is returning. He reminds them not to become easily swayed by what others are saying, but to actually know what God has revealed about the last days. We must know the truth so that we can live in calm expectation rather than fear and panic. After the break, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand more about who the man of lawlessness is and what he will do. Thanks for joining us today. Well, as you know, it's the final day of 2015, which means that our year-end ministry goal of $390,000 must be met today. December is the most critical month for us, and we're relying on all of our friends and listeners to join us by making a special gift to our Bible teaching mission. Thanks to you, we can continue our 58-year legacy of Bible teaching and engagement in 2016. Please help Back to the Bible Canada reach more lives for the kingdom. To donate today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Mm-hmm. 
Yesterday, we mentioned that Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed, and indeed, it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So let's see if we can remember the history of the temple. Initially, it was built by Solomon and completed in the year 960 BC. But because of Israel's disobedience and apostasy, God sent the Babylonians who destroyed the temple, burning it down in 586 BC. Because of the gracious hand of God, the temple was rebuilt by Joshua and Zerubbabel, finished in 516 BC, exactly 70 years after it was destroyed, fulfilling with an amazing accuracy the prophecy made by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. That same temple, although enhanced and beautified by Herod the Great, was the very same temple that Jesus denounced in Matthew 24, and we looked at that yesterday. And if I'm right about Jesus cursing the fig tree in which he said, may no one eat figs from you again, the fig tree was a symbol of the temple that Jesus cursed, forbidding the sacrifices and offerings to be repeated there. And since Jesus said this unto the present time, no temple has stood there. Indeed, even though there, have been, there has been a great enthusiasm for rebuilding the temple in our time by some of the Jews, the reality is that a Muslim mosque stands on that very site, forbidding the rebuilding of the temple and fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus to this day. But Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 talks about the man of lawlessness proclaiming himself to be God from the temple. And he could only be referring to the place of the temple mount. And here I think we must be careful not to allow our imaginations as to how this might be fulfilled to run amok. But it does seem to me that in the future, the Antichrist will demand the whole world will worship him on the ancient site of the temple. I mean, where else would he do this but on the very site which the entire world regards as the most holy site on earth? And so you see, I don't know whether the Jews have to rebuild the temple before the coming of the Antichrist. I mean, that may be that the Antichrist, however, might also designate that site and build his own temple there in honor of himself and demand that the world worship him there. Now, before we go on, it seems to me that we have to stop here and make an important clarification. Yesterday, I said that the only sign I knew of of the imminent return of Jesus is a worldwide gospel proclamation. And since we can't know exactly what Jesus meant when he said that, this gospel must be preached to the whole world, we must at all times be ready for the second coming, for the time may be upon us at any time. But now, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, it seems that the rise of the Antichrist must precede the second coming of Jesus. And is that true? Well, yeah, I think it is, but please understand Paul's statement up against the entire scripture. According to Daniel, many beasts have arisen, and it might be that the arrival of the Antichrist will be so swift and so sudden that his days are upon us more suddenly than we had anticipated. And Paul's reason for adding this statement in chapter 2, verse 4, is to settle believers' minds. Since this event is not happening, don't think that the day of the Lord has arrived. So let's keep reading. We now come to verses 5 to 7. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now this paragraph has led to some disagreements by some Bible students. 
Who is this one who now restrains the coming of the Antichrist? One suggestion has been made that it must refer to the Holy Spirit. But I'm relatively certain that's not the case. According to the Bible, people are coming to Christ during the reign of Antichrist, during the time of the tribulation, and to suggest that people can come to Christ without the drawing of the Holy Spirit is to have a defective doctrine of redemption and regeneration. Others have suggested that the church is the one who restrains the Antichrist, and she must be taken away by the rapture. And still others suggest that God removes the angels mentioned in Revelation 7 verse 1 who are standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. That is, these angels are preventing the troubling of the earth or the great tribulation. Still others suggest it refers to either world missions. Uh, The options I've heard of, in fact, uh, are quite a few. So, So let's settle a few things. Paul does not tell us who the one is who restrains the coming of the Antichrist, but I think the answer might be rather obvious. God is the one. In his sovereignty, he either bars the Antichrist from coming, or in the fullness of time, he allows him. And furthermore, from my reading of Genesis 11, in which God scattered the nations at Babel, God has prevented the final super-society from ever developing that would unite the entire earth. But now, because of God's sovereign purposes, he allows it for 42 months. But in verse 7, Paul adds, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world today. And many a man and many a beast would have loved to have been that one. But God has not permitted it until the time he designates for his purposes. And now we come to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, I personally love that verse. Do you remember how this section of Scripture began? In verse 2, Paul counsels the Thessalonian Christians not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And might I say, when it comes to talk of the Antichrist, how quickly many believers have become alarmed. You know, throughout history, there have been a ridiculous quest to identify the Antichrist. Predictions have included the leader of the Vandal invaders who sacked Rome, Mohammed, various popes, the papacy itself, both Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX, who, by the way, both of these men viewed the other as the Antichrist, Martin Luther, King George II of England, Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, Khrushchev, Mikhail Gorbachev. Some of you remember that he had a birthmark on his forehead, and many thought that was the mark of the beast. And today that includes the Mahdi, Barack Obama, Pope Francis. I mean, all of this is sheer nonsense and as ridiculous as identifying the date of Christ's return. And all of this leads to hysteria and gives mockers a reason to make fun. The key for Paul is not identifying who he is, but the assurance that the Lord Jesus will kill him. Verses 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I notice three things of the man of lawlessness. First, he is able to do miracles and deceive many. Second, he is able to deceive those who are already perishing. 
And third, the reason these people have refused Christ is because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so an assurance is given to believers. Christ has the power to keep you. In Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, the delusion will be great, but the words, the elect, give an even greater confidence. So do not be easily upset or unsettled. Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Yes, the Antichrist will come. And yes, he will deceive those who are perishing. And yes, the Lord Jesus himself will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Well, we've covered a lot of territory this week. Join us tomorrow as we end this series by reflecting on the final victory of Jesus. I hope you're looking forward to meeting him soon. John, thanks for talking about something that we don't like to talk about very much because it conjures up all kinds of feelings and even fears about what the future might hold. You know, I'm thinking about uh, the the Christmas story a little bit because we've just gotten past there uh, where the angels come to the shepherd and say, fear not, fear not. How do we overcome this fear? Yeah, wow, it's so great to put the Christmas message together with this idea of Christ coming again. And, and of course, we know that an Antichrist is coming. Um, I think fear not always means that we are hidden within the promises of God. God will never allow one thing to happen to his children that within his sovereign goodness he does not determine for our long-term good. We need to embrace deeply the sovereignty of God, the meticulous sovereignty of God, and the assurance that God watches over his children and will deliver us from all evil. That is the assurance that we have, and so we can say, come Lord Jesus. Today we've covered a lot of ground in this passage. It teaches us so much about the end times. I hope you've gained a better knowledge of what we must know about Jesus' return and the things that we can expect. These words are so needed today. We need to recover a biblical awareness of this topic so that it prepares us for how we ought to live today. Further, we're reminded of an important truth, that in the end, God will be victorious. Well, tomorrow, we'll wrap up this series with Dr. Neufeld with our final message on Christ's final victory. Don't miss it right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As each year comes to an end, it amazes me how quickly time passes. In a sense, it's a reminder that we're here for just a vapor. Our existence on this earth is so finite. Time is so precious. And that's a principle we also find in the Bible. Well, 2015 has come and gone. And as a ministry, we reflect on just how much has been accomplished through the providence and grace of God. For instance, just the fact that we're coming up on our very first anniversary of Dr. John Newfeld is an incredible milestone. It has allowed us to reach more Canadians across the country every day, and the stories and feedback we receive regularly testifies of the impact and reach of this ministry. There's so much more I could say, but on behalf of Back to the Bible Canada, I'm so grateful for all of our partners, listeners, and ministry friends who make all of this possible through their prayers and sacrificial gifts. 
It's because of you we can continue our 58-year legacy of Bible teaching and engagement. We hope that on this New Year's Eve, you enter into 2016 with great expectation and encouragement as the beloved of Christ. God bless, and thanks again for listening to this program and for your support wherever you might be.